Welcome to another extraordinary archive from Restorative Justice on the Rise, which is an ongoing telecouncil series co-sponsored by the Peace Alliance and is a dialogue platform for all of us to join together in finding resources, mobilizing, and also empowering ourselves to implement restorative justice and call for it in our communities and beyond. This archive features a conversation with Nancy Riestenberg, who is the Prevention and School Climate Specialist for the Minnesota Department of Education. She's also the author of a, a very extraordinary book called Circle in the Square. You can visit livingjusticepress.org, which is a phenomenal publication house for restorative justice books and beyond. Again, at livingjusticepress.org. For more information about this series, upcoming guests, as well as the over 100 archives, now that we're in our third season, please go to restorativejusticeontherise.com. Enjoy this dialogue with Nancy Riestenberg. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Restorative Justice on the Rise. I'm your host, Molly Rowan Leach, and we convene every week, Thursdays, 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, for this collective dialogue and platform for education, experiential sharing, and resources and mobilization building in the field of restorative justice and beyond. Before we go into welcoming our honored guest speaker tonight, I'd just like to share a few notes about the room that we're in and how this all works. If it's your first time here on this series, again, a warm welcome to you. We have a full archive featuring over three seasons, uh, excuse me, over two seasons. We're in our third season now of Restorative Justice on the Rise, which is somewhat of a virtual town hall. That means this is for you and for us, the people, you to get involved as much as you wish, as much as you're comfortable with, in asking live questions, which you can do mostly during the second half of our, our time together, and also pre-submitting questions during the registration process. So every, every uh, mid time between each of our series calls on Thursdays, you are welcome to come in and pre-submit your questions after you register. And make sure also to get signed up for the e-news list. We don't share your email or your information. That's really important to us. And we also want to keep you updated um, about once a week, usually with an extra reminder about each Thursday's call time with resources and information, not just about the guest speaker for the week, but hopefully um, pertinent videos, materials, PDFs, things like that. So I also want to give a, a great thanks out tonight to the Peace Alliance for its partial sponsorship of this ongoing radio webcast series, as well as an honoring and gratitude to Living Justice Press, which can be found at livingjusticepress.org. As many of you know, we're in the middle of a mini-series right now with focus on restorative justice practices in schools. And Living Justice Press is our partner in this mini-series, and many of its authors and practitioners are featured in it. 
And so at the, around the close of the call tonight, I'll also be sharing a bit about next week's session. In order to ask a live question on these calls, please press 1 on your telephone keypad. And you can do that uh, when probably about the 30-minute point and beyond on tonight's call. All of these archives are recorded and posted at restorativejusticeontherise.com. And again, you can find out much more about the upcoming schedule and um, tap into all of our archives there. So without further ado, uh, again being the fact that we're in the midst of a mini-series really focused on restorative justice practices in schools, and also celebrating the wonderful call we had last week with Carolyn Boyce Watson, I'd like to introduce and welcome our very special guest tonight, Nancy Riestenberg, first of all, by sharing with you a really, I think, profound quote from the introduction to her book, Circle in the Square. If you're not familiar with this book, I'm guessing you'll want to be familiar with it. It's available at livingjusticepress.org or you can tap into it on your online bookseller of choice. And she says here, Sometimes I think that when we as human beings are faced with seemingly hopeless problems, we respond from a lack of imagination. We do the same things we have done before, even if that response didn't really work. In the moment, we have trouble thinking of a new way of responding. Imagination can bump us out of ruts. Drawing on what we know, imagination twists and turns our knowledge into new and different shapes, forming new connections. To engage our imagination, we have to fill up with a wide variety of stories, pictures, knowledge, and experiences. And she goes on to say, for over 14 years, a variety of Minnesota educators, community members, and law enforcement officials have been trying out the principles of restorative justice. Their goal has been to make discipline in school a teachable moment so that conflicts and harms become opportunities to guide and to teach, not to punish and separate. Their creativity has taken many shapes. And this decade of work has produced some profound individual stories, as well as promising statistics and practices. And so as many of you may already know, I'm guessing, Nancy is the Prevention and School Climate Specialist with the Minnesota Department of Education, as, as well as many other things. And she's also, again, the author of Circle in the Square. And so it's just a wonderful honor and pleasure to have you here with us tonight, Nancy. Welcome to Restorative Justice on the Rise. Thank you, Molly. I'm glad to be here. And I was just wondering, as we normally do on each of our sessions, we start out the conversation by talking a bit about why, why or what brought you into the field and what's what, whatever story you'd like to share about your journey. Hmm. Well, um, restorative justice is uh, uh, a practice and principles and um, a way of working, actually, in the world for me that uh, I found pulled together all kinds of different strands in my life. Um, 
I was raised Catholic, and so uh, one of the things that I was taught by the nuns was um, the importance of forgiveness. Um, when I uh, had one of my first professional jobs, it was with the Illusion Theater Company in Minneapolis, and we had uh, prevention plays on child sexual abuse prevention education. And so I learned a lot about the needs of kids who had been hurt or had been victimized by sexual abuse. And one of the things that I, I was really struck by was the importance of them to be able to tell their story and take back some of their power. Um, by doing that. And, uh, and then when I got into working in schools, uh, uh, I was the violence prevention specialist, and so I was looking at, well, what causes violence and what, um, what can we do to prevent it? And one of the things that was really striking to me was the idea that if you excluded people, you actually were probably making the problem of violence worse um, if you used exclusion as a response for consequences. And, um, and so, wow, that was really hard to, what do you do then if you don't send kids away, if they've done something wrong, you have to hold them accountable. How can we hold them accountable um, and still keep them in school? Uh, that seemed to be uh, a real challenge. And so when I learned about restorative justice in the early 90s, uh, it just put everything together in one, in one place, just really nice and tidy and clear. Um, because here was a, an a opportunity for people who had done something wrong to make amends for what they had done, to um, give back to the community, to show that they weren't just a bad person, they weren't just somebody who would do something wrong. Here was an opportunity for people who had been hurt to be given voice so that um, their experiences wouldn't linger like a mosquito bite that never goes away or worse. Um, and an opportunity for parents to be engaged with the school as in partnership in the way that schools always want parents to be partners with them. And here was a real concrete way for that to happen. Um, uh, and, and we could hold people accountable without sending them away. And that seemed to me to be just such a, an extraordinary gift for education because we know that if children stay in class, they're more likely to succeed. So how can we make that happen and make it happen in a way that's safe for everybody? Mm -hmm. And the fact that I really love stories, and a restorative conference is always a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's got a dramatic arc to it, and so I like the. I was also drawn just because it kind of fed my my imagination. Mm. You know, one of one of the themes that came up last week with Carolyn and has popped up in other telecasts is specific to schools and the many of the laws that have been passed that are creating even more stress on teachers and performance uh, directly tied into their evaluation and, and to student performance, that is. So student performance, i.e. testing, is now, I believe, 50%, at least here in Colorado, of a teacher's evaluation, i.e. job stability. And I'm wondering if you might respond to how um, a restorative climate in a school might support teachers who are feeling so much pressure. It, it's a, uh, sometimes I think it would seem to a lot of educators counterintuitive, um, but the research bears out over and over and over again that the more you invest in relationship at the front end, at the beginning, 
um, the more time you have for actual um, teaching. You have more time on task uh, as you go through the semester, you go through the year. Um, and that only, you know, it, it makes a, a logical sense because in order for kids to learn, they need to um, be in relationship with the people who, person who teaches them, and they need to be in relationship with each other. Otherwise, they're going to sit in class, and their little amygdalas are going to be on high alert, kind of afraid, mm -hmm. and they'll either be in fight, flight, or freeze, mm -hmm. and uh, they won't be engaged in conscious thought and learning. And that's just the way we're made. That's the way the brain operates. We are quite that the the research is really clear about that, and. Um, uh, and so for um, teachers and administrators to recognize this fundamental truth about human beings um, uh, goes a long way, I think, towards um, giving people permission to take the time at the beginning of the school year or the beginning of the semester to establish those relationships and those connections, not just between the teacher and the students, but between the students themselves, each other, so mm -hmm. that they can feel safe enough to ask questions, to raise their hand, to make a mistake, to, as Ms. Frizzle says in the magic school bus, fall down. <laughs> um, uh, because that's how learning happens. I and love that reference. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love Ms. Frizzle. She seems um, like a restorative practitioner for sure. <laughs> I would say, I would say, definitely. And various, you know, just so imaginative and so uh, accepting of everybody and expecting everyone to accept each other. You know, the, the climate that she made in her little book <laughs> um, is uh, really, really lovely. But at any rate, um, uh, we know, we know how the brain works and we know that in order for the prefrontal cortex to be engaged, people have to feel safe. And when you come into a classroom as a student and you look around you, it's not like when I was a kid where I knew three-quarters of the kids in the classroom and their parents and where their farms were or what street they lived on. Uh, you go into a classroom today and you see people wearing clothes that are different from you. They've got skin color that's different from you. You have no idea where they come from, and so how would you know whether or not they would be safe? So you have to take the time in order for people to be able to get to know each other. And, um, and, then, and then with that power of connection and relationship, um, use that to go forward and uh, to learn. Um, I, I, I can't really comment about too much about um, how different uh, schools, different states are now um, uh, evaluating their teachers, um, but uh, I, I do just know that basic uh, truth about um, human beings and how they learn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, on the on on that thread, I, I wonder about another part of a restorative climate process, um, systemic process, perhaps set up, might be said, that not only includes the school day, but have you seen other processes in action in Minnesota or other places in, in our country that are are really actively involving parents or even the teachers themselves doing anything um, that's, that support their own um, population, their own relationships as teachers, as administrators, and is co-supportive of that? Well, um, probably the best place to start if anybody wanted to uh, engage in bringing restorative practices into the school 
um, and just by way of um, uh, a point of clarification, in a school, restorative practices are not just the intervention that you do when Johnny hits up, um, a manual um, and is sent down to the office. Um, it's not just the repair of harm, either using the circle process or, or conference model. It is also about the building of relationships with, uh, between students and students and, and students and teachers and teachers and teachers and teachers and community. And um, there are two main practices um, that uh, uh, help to build that relationship. One is to, for all of the adults to speak in I statements, to speak to use affective statements. I feel happy when everybody's lined up quickly and quietly because um, I, I know uh, we have learned how to do that well. Um, I feel uh, disappointed that I was not able to get through all the material today because I worked really hard getting it together last night and I hope maybe we can, do, we can be more focused tomorrow. Something that helps children hear the words of, of empathy, of feeling. A lot of kids come to school and they don't know those words. Um, and frustration can come from not being able to express how you feel. So for the adults to, to give that vocabulary to kids, but also for the adults to give a part of themselves to the students um, so that it becomes pretty clear that the reason why people follow the rules is because of people. Um, you know, I followed the rules of my school because I didn't want to disappoint my mother. I didn't follow the rules of the school because they were written down in a handbook. It's about relationship. And so having those skills, those practices, and, and um, uh, particularly of uh, affective statements, and then using the circle process as a means of ensuring that everybody is participating as a way of delivering social-emotional learning, or delivering academic content, or delivering um, bullying prevention lessons, whatever, um, it uh, gives you two things. One, you can see everybody and make sure that everyone's participating. Uh, and two, everyone gets to hear everyone else. And that helps to build this connection between people. Um, mm -hmm. So that, if there's trouble, little level trouble, the teachers can engage one or two kids in restorative, conference, uh, restorative chats or restorative conversations. Um, and if there's a big problem, a complex problem like bullying or a big old fight or something like that, then people can stop, step back, and take some time to pull together um, the person who was hurt, the person who did the hurting, other affected parties, which may include family members and parents and teachers and other students, to do some, uh, you know, take, a take more time to, to unpack what happened and figure out how to repair the harm so that everyone can get back to class again. So it's not just the intervention. Because if you have the intervention and you send the child back into an environment where people are bullying each other and being disrespectful, it's kind of hard to maintain the good intentions you had uh, at, that you signed off on at the end of your conference or your circle. Um, so a really effective way of starting to put together a program like that in a school a way of doing things is with the staff. And one really good way to start with the staff is for the staff to be in circle and to learn that process and to learn more about each other than maybe they had before. Um, the stronger the adults are, the better able they are to be able to support each other to work with the kids. Um, and so then you can see where this would be useful all the, all the way down the line, you know, to 
to use uh, um, the circle process where everyone has voice and a chance to speak in a variety of ways with a community of practice uh, where, where teachers are maybe studying what's the best way to teach children of color or what's the best way to in incorporate this uh, reading curriculum or whatever it is that they were, they're, they're studying as their own community of practice or as a part of a staff meeting. Uh, also could be used as part of a parent-teacher organization meeting. Um, you know, I saw a lot of people come to parent-teacher meetings, um, and we were seated in rows, and I looked at the backs of people's heads during the meeting and saw one person in the front in charge of it, and then didn't see the back of that person's head the next time there was a PTA meeting. <laughs> in part because why should they come back when they're not really engaged, right? Um, but if you're using the principles of relationship and community building, then you're more intentional about making sure that everybody is participating, welcomed, their voices are heard, they have the chance to speak. So all the way down the line this can be used and then it makes more sense to the adults as to why this is important to incorporate in their work with the students. So, so you said that it might be most appropriate perhaps to start with the staff. So if you would share with those of us who are perhaps um, taking the first step to, to bring RJP into their school, um, what, what are the needs there? Is it really as simple as, uh, first of all, not making it too complex, <laughs> that, that, that do we need anybody like a, a mediator or an official, a, the school counselor? What's, are there any requirements that you would recommend or uh, how do you set it up? Well. Um, the first thing is for people to have informed consent. And what that means is that you need to give them enough information so they can make a decision as to whether or not this is something that they want to do. Uh, one of the challenges and one of the strengths of restorative practices is that people are not forced to do it. Um, they choose to do it. You know, um, if, I've, if I've hurt you, the choice is either I'm suspended or I do this. But I still have a choice, right? Um, and, uh, and so that's a bit of a challenge when you're talking about uh, working with a, a staff. How do, you, how do you bring people along to, to participate in this? But there are some basic things that can be done. And as simple as just buying a couple of books and leaving them in the staff room for people to pick up and you know, flip through to see if that sparks any kind of interest, to look around and see if there are um, practitioners or trainers or speakers who could come in and address the staff uh, at a, uh, either a staff meeting um, or uh, you know, part of their workshop day that they get to have a, a, a two hours, a half day, a full day, just getting some basic information to start out with so they can start to think about things and, and see where this might fit or might not fit. Um, sometimes people are driven by a need. Um, they may be driven by the need to address more effectively uh, problems with bullying, or they may be driven by the need to more effectively address a disproportionate number of kids of color being suspended or expelled from their school building, um, or a concern that they have for the fact that they don't feel like they're reaching all of the children in, um, for who knows what reason. They just, you know, they're not being successful in keeping them connected and, and, and staying in school. And so that might be the motivation um, uh, for people to look at to look at using restorative practices, um, uh, uh, there are um, some basic things that everybody needs to know. 
Um, and then it is really so the basic things that everybody needs to know is effective statements and how how to build community in the classroom. Uh, the circle process is a really wonderful way of being able to do that. It's not the only way, but there needs to be intentionality in building relationships with kids in the classroom. Um, and then you need to have a smaller number of people in a school who would know how to and would have the time to, have the flexibility, I should say, to be able to run a restorative process. Um, some schools have done that by uh, looking out into the community and finding community resources, uh, a restorative justice nonprofit or a mediation that does a uh, center that does restorative justice practices and using them to help with that. Um, um, or they get their student support staff people, the counselors or the social workers or the dean or the assistant principal or someone uh, to learn how to do that as well. And so they're able to do it in-house and have a couple of different people depending upon the circumstances. Um, uh, but, the, but again, it's, it's uh, um, I think it's both uh, comforting and aggravating to know that implementing anything in a school takes somewhere between two to four or five years. So it's not a quick fix, um, but but for some people it's a relief to know that they're not going to they don't have to wholesale change absolutely everything by by January um, to recognize that this is a process that takes time. You have to find the time and the place where you can train people, give people information, have people reflect, learn, practice, set up your system so that you are able to measure whether or not what you're doing is effective, um, et cetera. And, that, and so you're, you're, looking at, you're looking at a couple of years mm -hmm. of work to be able to do that. Now, I know that individuals have gone and learned, um, learned the circle process, for instance, and then come back to the school, and they just changed what they did. Um, I know of a social worker who worked in elementary schools, two different elementary schools in a small rural district. And after he learned the circle process, that's just how he did his work. The child would be sent to him because of some kind of behavior issue. And after talking with the child, he generally would go back to the classroom and hold circle with the class um, because the behavior was coming out of a context and it just found it to be much more effective to empower the children to be able to get along mm -hmm. with each other and help each other in a good way. Mm -hmm. uh, teacher learns this, learns restorative principles, restorative practices, learns the circle process, goes back into the classroom and does things differently. Teacher learns the restorative questions, you know, what happened, what were you thinking at the time, what have you thought about sex, et cetera, uses that as a means of um, addressing problems with a student where the teacher is feeling maybe disrespected or frustrated, and you know has a, has a, has some tools to be able to have a, a kind of rational, centered conversation that's not blaming, it's not shaming, it's kind of you know let's try mm -hmm. to solve this problem, and as we solve this problem, you know let's let's do some self-reflection and some bigger picture thinking, and and then and then we'll come up with some possible solutions and see which one works the best. So individuals can do things, but it is so much more effective if you were able to get everybody pretty much going in the same direction. Mm -hmm. I just want to make mention to or, or actually pose to you the, uh, since you've been in this field for 
um, decades now and, and really have devoted your life to to really providing education and presence to implementing these processes. And thank you so much for for your devotion to the to the field and and beyond for so many years. And given you've you've seen so many scenarios and certainly no two are alike, what do you see are some of the most common fears or doubts about restorative practices and implementing them? And what might be the response to those common fears that you would have, that you've witnessed, perhaps? Mm-hmm. Um, well, adults have amygdalas just like children do. <laughs> and so um, things that, uh, uh, that I think adults are afraid of um, uh, come, to, come, come, to, come to bear. Um, and for administrators, of course, uh, I think there are concerns about control, which are really rooted in, in concerns about safety uh, for everyone. Is this going to be a process that's safe for these children? Um, you know, what may look like somebody being a, kind of a control freak and not wanting to give their power over to children, I think is really rooted in just this main concern. You know, all of the adults in the school are, are, are responsible for the safety of the, of the students, and, and that really, I think, is one of the first... Um, questions whether it's explicitly stated it's certainly an underlying concern and and people are concerned about um, emotional safety as well as physical safety and um, and I think that uh, administrators are particularly concerned as our teachers about will this process result in physical safety for everybody uh, first and foremost and then secondly will this result in emotional safety for everybody and I think for some people it can seem counterintuitive to have um, a person who was hurt being able to talk to the person who hurt them, uh, that the, the, the possibility of the, of the person who was hurt being hurt even more seems to be so much greater and that it would be better to separate everybody. But there's precious little separation in the school unless somebody actually picks up and goes someplace else physically. Um, it's very hard to not run into people. And um, and so that you know separating people doesn't necessarily always give you safety, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, likewise, sending somebody away from a couple of days may give people a sense of relief for a few days, but then they come back. You know, children come back, and um, uh, and they come back not with any further knowledge about why they were sent away necessarily than when they left, and so helping people to just take a deep breath and think through um, how does this process of having people come together, uh, what, what are the things that help to provide for safety in regards to that? And then what do we need to do to try to, try to ensure that that safety has legs on it, that it extends back into the classroom? How can we ensure, ensure mm-hmm. that? I think the, that those are some major questions. I think another huge question for anybody in a school, and this ties back to that earlier question that you had about teachers and their performance, um, and they're, you know, they're being judged by the performance of their students, um, is the whole issue of time. Um, can I take the time as a teacher uh, to build relationships with kids for three class periods when I could have been using that time to talk about the American Revolution that they're going to be tested on in three months? 
Mm-hmm. You know that that is a that is a, a legitimate, understandable concern. And um, and what would be your response, like if someone were expressing that concern to you legitimately, how might children, you respond to that? The the whole testing, the whole regimen of testing, has put another layer of tension into mm-hmm. the school for the kids. And so the more that you can relieve them of that tension, the more space they're going to have in their brain to be able to learn what you're talking about. And if you don't take the time at the beginning, you're going to, the t- as the tension mounts, if you will, uh, or, or the, the school year just proceeds as it usually does, there are going to be times when you are not going to be teaching anything because you're going to be dealing with behavior. Right. But mm. if you are able to establish relationship with kids, you can more quickly put them back on task um, because your relationship with them is strong and you and the students have made agreements about how you're going to handle things. Mm -hmm. Well, I I just want to take a brief moment to pause and thank everybody. If you're arriving just now, we are in the middle of a powerful conversation here with Nancy Riesenberg, author of Circle in the Square, published by Living Justice Press, who happens to be our wonderful partner for this mini-series on RJP, Restorative Justice Practices in Schools, and really honoring our youth. And also just to make mention, too, if you haven't already mined the archives, and also thanks for your patience in our building our new website, which is restorativejusticeontherise.com, Please go there and check out the archives and also the upcoming schedule. We're also looking to build a resource area there that features the work of so many of our wonderful way showers. We also welcome program suggestions and guest speaker suggestions, certainly. This is a public forum that is free of charge to you. We hope that you'll tap into it next week as well as we talk uh, with a few more incredible folks from the Minnesota public school system. Uh, Just again, if you're interested in picking up a copy of Circle in the Square, you can go to livingjusticepress.org to check out the description of the book, more about Nancy there, as well as uh, any bookseller, I believe, online has it provided as well. So... Um, Nancy, why don't we go into a few of these areas that um, we had discussed previous to tonight's call. And then we had an incredible array of pre-submitted questions. And I'd also like to remind everyone that's live with us tonight to, from here on out, press 1 on your telephone keypad and we'll kind of queue up some comments and questions for the rest of the evening and uh, welcome you to do that at any time you would like. Again, press 1 on your telephone keypad to do that. So let's talk for a moment about the the important aspect of zero tolerance policies in schools. And um, there's a number of organizations such as Dignity in Schools and the Advancement Project that recommend the use of restorative practices as an antidote to zero-tolerance policies in schools that seem to push students out, particularly students of color. And how might you respond in, you know, in the way that, how does RJ address these issues, which are extremely poignant? Well, um, I think the, the short answer is that um, it gives people a way of holding students accountable without sending them out of the school. And um, 
um, as I said, kids come back um, and they don't ne you haven't necessarily solved the problem that sent them away in the first place. But the problem with zero tolerance is um, uh, it's rather complex. It's a, it's a combination of a, of a number of different things that have to do not just with, pol with discipline policy, but um, also with uh, uh, the interface between that and, um, to a certain extent, the pressure on testing and the pressure on people, um, schools, and the way in which they're held accountable. Um, and, and I also think that there's a, a challenge for any large school um, to be able to create an environment that is is welcoming for everybody because just the size is daunting. So um, responding to zero tolerance uh, policies takes requires, I think, a, a, a whole school approach again, where you're not just changing the practices that happen in the in the office, but you do have to address um, things that are happening in the hallway and in the classroom, and um, the Advancement Project, um, the NAACP, a variety of different organizations, Dignity in Schools, et cetera, have looked at the research and the general recommendation around um, uh, the challenges that come with kids being pushed out or dropping out of school or being pushed into the criminal justice system through policies in the school uh, center around three main areas. One has to do with addressing bullying um, that, that causes uh, toxicity in the environment of a school and that you need to uh, pay attention to and do uh, work to create safe and caring environments for all children. Um, particularly uh, in regards to bullying, I would say for LGBT kids, uh, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, and questioning youth, um, and for children of color. And, uh, um, and then the second one uh, is a program, a framework actually, of um, uh, creating a positive environment called Positive Behavior Interventions and Supports, PBIS. It's a very sophisticated framework that helps to establish expectations for students and for adults um, that focuses on the positive as opposed to um, telling people what they're not supposed to do. And then uh, finally, restorative practices, in particular because a whole school uptake of restorative practices gives you those processes where you don't have to suspend kids, you hold them accountable, and you really get to the root of the problem um, mm. uh, in the, in, as you are doing that. Mm -hmm. and, um, and it doesn't preclude any of the usual partners that people see in connection to a zero tolerance policy. The usual partners in regards to zero tolerance usually includes liaison officers or the local police force. Well, mm -hmm. if the local police force in, um, sees the, their work as uh, being one that is rooted in the principles of community policing and they have trained their staff, their police officers, particularly the ones who work in schools, to be able to do restorative conferences or circles as we have some officers in Minnesota can do, um, then you just flip, you flip it. You you know you don't take away any of the usual partners, and you don't take away the the skills and the and the powers that they have. They just use it differently. Uh huh. I love that. And point. so if there's so if there's a problem that's really serious, and you have a big old fight in the in the school, and you call in your liaison officer, 
the liaison officer would have as part of his options or her options the opportunity to address that problem differently. Instead of, uh, of arresting those children, they could work with the administrator to have the children suspended for a day so they can calm down with a task at hand, not to play video games or to go out shoplifting, but to figure out what are their values that they want to talk about when they come back, what do they need to do to answer the questions, the restorative questions that they're going to be talked to about, who do they want to come with them to be in the conference. Mm -hmm. And so when they come back, then you have the police officer or a dean or maybe a third party, depending upon who that is, using their power differently to participate with these kids in relationship to help them figure out how to solve the problem that they caused hmm. so that they don't Great. Great. So I, I just... We, we, excuse me, Nancy. I don't mean to cut mm-hmm. you off. We just have no, questions. Right. We have live questions and we have a bundle of robust pre-submitted questions. And uh, we also like to provide resources for folks. Um, and I just wanted to make mention that the Advancement Project that would be found online at advancementproject.org as well as dignityinschools.org. That's dignityinschools.org. I'd like to open up the line here for um, some live questions and then integrate some of the pre-submitted ones as well. Like I mentioned before, thank you to all of you who pre-submitted the questions for tonight. Uh, Rachel, you're live. Welcome. Hi. Hello. Um, I have a question. I am a behavior analyst, and primarily now I work with children with special needs, but I'm Mm -hmm. interested in restorative justice, and I'm wondering if you've heard of any involvement of behavior analysts. Um, I can't say that I specifically can think of a behavior analyst right now um, who does that. However, I do know that there are some excellent resources for uh, students with special needs from a company, a publishing company out of Australia called Inyahead, N-I-N-Y-A-H-E-A-D. Um, they have uh, um, uh, tools that can be used with kids with special needs to slow down the process and help them to see very clearly either questions with pictures or the questions written down on big cards so that you can lay them out and organize them and take them through the process. Um, Some of the first uh, circles in schools were conducted with um, EBD kids, special special needs kids, emotionally behaviorally disturbed or disorder uh, students. Um, And so uh, people use the circle process and use restorative practices with uh, students who have autism, um, with students with a variety of disabilities. Um, and uh, really the, the use of the, of the practice, of the practices, um, uh, your own knowledge of the students will come to bear as to the best way of doing it, um, right. uh, what would make the most sense. But one of the things that I think is important to make a distinction about is that uh, restorative process can be therapeutic. It's not mm-hmm. therapy. But certainly the more, the, ver- the wider variety of knowledge and skills you have, the more uh, imaginative you can be, I suppose, uh, in how you would use this 
um, use these principles and these practices in your own work. Okay. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you, Rachel. So, Nancy, I'd like to go back for just a moment before we do some more questions to the aspect of trauma. It's such an important aspect of all of this and would love to hear from you um, about the discussion in schools and in the juvenile justice area uh, regarding the effects of trauma and adverse childhood experiences on children and how restorative justice practices can help to create a school that is more trauma-informed. Yeah. It, it, uh, um, the issue of the effects of trauma on children has really um, been raised up in the last couple of years, particularly by uh, Attorney General um, Eric Holder uh, in his work in looking at the juvenile justice system and, and, and recognizing that trauma has a huge part to play in a lot of children's lives and, and in the um, uh, experiences that might lead them into the criminal justice system, as well as uh, in just schools in general, uh, particularly with the study uh, that has been replicated in a number of different places by the Centers for Disease Control um, on adverse childhood experiences. And this knowledge, um, uh, if I can, there, there's one thing I guess that sums up uh, pretty clearly what needs to be done with children in school. Uh, and that is that kind effect and slow processing is important for dealing with emotionally difficult children and adults. And um, you can't, one, one should just assume in any population, any school, I don't care what the neighborhood is that the kids come from, there will be children in the classroom who have experienced trauma. And so we need, we are, as adults, even more compelled to treat children with compassion and kindness um, because if we want them to be successful in school, that statement, kind affect, how our face looks and how our, what our tone of voice is in working with them when they've done something wrong so that they are not re-triggered into shame and humiliation really is essential if we're going to be successful in helping them to come back to a state of calmness and to be able to fix the problem they might have so that they have some agency about themselves. Um, and, and towards that end, uh, I guess, because of this uh, continued or this, this increased uh, awareness about uh, the effects of trauma and adverse childhood experiences, many schools are incorporating what is a standard part of a basic circle process, which is some mindful practice. Mm -hmm. um, just have kids breathe three times a day. Just practice mindfully breathing as a means of calming down their amygdala so that they can learn how to self-regulate. And other mindful practices as well. It's great to be able to teach them how their brain works um, as a means of uh, giving, ha helping them have the power to regulate themselves regardless of what other, you know, in, in spite of the experiences that they might have had. Mm. You know, it reminds me a bit of uh, when I was over at the Northwest Justice Forum in Portland, Oregon this past summer, there was a very powerful presentation by a professor from Eastern Mennonite University who manages the STAR program there, just to, yeah. to reference to that. And I, yeah. I can't believe I'm forgetting her name right now. I have so much respect for her. 
Um, but just a, just a reference to that for anybody who might be interested. There's a program over there that has uh, a lot of great ideas and practices that are in motion. Um, right. So, but to, uh, speaking speaking about kids who may whose behavior may may in part be because they're they don't have the neural pathways for impulse control. A restorative process is really a respectful thing because it acknowledges the fact that maybe they didn't learn how to be able to control themselves because mm-hmm. of the environment that they came in, but that they can learn how to do that and that we're not going to send them away because they came from a place where they had to be impulsive all the time in order to survive. Mm-hmm. We're going to keep community around them. We're going to take the time to help them learn new ways of doing things. And we're going, to, we're going to acknowledge the fact that, yeah, it takes some time to build new neural pathways, but you can do it. It's possible. And we're right. going to be here and we're going to help you along with that. Well, I'd, I'd love to bring into the conversation uh, an excellent question from a professor. And she asks, uh, well, she says, she's teaching restorative justice at Montclair State University and the students are interested in best practices and how you make the program culturally sensitive. And she'd love to hear your thoughts on this, as well as she's interested in any studies comparing the use of restorative justice in different states in this context. Well, <clears throat> restorative practices um, <coughs> draw upon modern restorative justice um, uh, philosophy and, and uh, study, uh, John Braithwaite, Howard, Howard Zare, et cetera, et cetera, um, but also upon uh, indigenous people's wisdom. Um, uh, and so um, the circle process in particular um, is a process that, that has been practiced by, probably unbroken by many indigenous communities around the, the world. And um, uh, and so towards that end, for some groups of people, for instance, in Minnesota, Ojibwe people, um, the Dakota people, um, using a restorative process and the circle process is uh, culturally um, culturally competent, um, done with respect and with acknowledgement of elders, um, et cetera. Um, but just taking you know, a standard thing that can happen in a school where you've got somebody who um, came from a refugee camp in Kenya and is maybe from Somalia originally. Uh, the family is from Somalia. And uh, somebody who uh, grew up in Minnesota and uh, you know, is a white European uh, descent and, and, and somebody else who might be um, third generation Hmong uh, here uh, and they all got into some big old fight. Um, the fact that you invite all those people together and you and because it was a fight maybe that's so serious that you need to also invite the family takes you down the road of being culturally competent because the facilitator of a process, a restorative process is not in charge of the outcome. The facilitator tries to make the space safe for everyone so that they can speak their truth. And so even in a diverse setting, with diverse participants, you have the capacity, I would say, to be um, more culturally competent than if you were to just follow the rule book. Um, uh, And giving parents the opportunity to really participate makes a huge, huge difference. 
There's another excellent question before we, we um, I have people in the queue to ask live questions, and I really wanted to make sure to get as many of these pre-submitted questions in tonight. And another one of them it, uh, points to an experience that this woman is having um, in working with a kindergarten teacher she says she volunteers with uh, who yells a lot. And she says she works with three small groups of two students in another space. And she complimented the teacher on one occasion in which she had the children settle in, into quiet downtime. Her statement was that, first I need to get their attention. This is what they understand and are used to. And then I can treat them differently. And she's just wondering about how to be more supportive in that situation if that's possible and how you might do that. That's a tricky mm. one. It's a tricky one. I I uh, used to go into classrooms and um, because I was a parent of a child and the teachers allowed me to do this and I would read stories to, to students and I would have them sit in a circle and the way that I facilitated the conversation would be to send around a talking piece. And so... Um, uh, you know, that might be something that the parent might offer um, to explain to the students who were, I'm going to be reading a story from Japan and I have this doll that I got in Japan. I'm just making this up, but anyway. Um, uh, and I'm going to use this as my talking piece. So I'm going to read the story and then I want to hear from you what you think. And the way that we're going to hear each other is that I'm going to send this doll around. And when you have the doll, you get to speak. And when you don't have the doll, you get to listen. Won't that be wonderful? As a means of, of showing sometimes to people that there is another way for people to operate. I have, uh, I, I remember um, uh, an American Indian uh, man uh, going into a classroom of first graders and the teacher was just amazed that they sat and listened to him tell a story for 20 minutes. They just, she couldn't believe that they could do that. And sometimes people need to see how kids respond to another adult to start having the imagination for how they might do it differently themselves. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. that um, Hopefully it'll work. I mean, you know, I mean, it's, again, children I think are, you know, if they feel safe, um, they're more likely to, to listen, I would say. Well, let's, let's go ahead and open up the lines again. Um, just want to welcome Rohan. You're live. Welcome. Hi. I, hi. I actually hi. didn't... Uh, my name is Rowan, and I'm glad to um, be on the line. However, I didn't intentionally raise my hand. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you for being with us tonight. And uh, I, I saw one by your name. So welcome, and I hope to see you again in the, the future. Um, so let's let's go back to another question from, let's see here. There's a question from Jose, and last week, Jose, it was such a pleasure to have you on with us, and it looks like actually you've raised your hand, so maybe we'll open up the line and you can just ask it live. I know that Jose is uh, with Teachers Unite and is a, is a teacher in Brooklyn, so welcome, mm -hmm. Jose. You're live. Thank you. Um, I actually don't remember the question I asked originally. 
So maybe <laughs> this time you can ask that. But I did want to make a quick comment, which is that um, in my experience, I found that there's no easy way to begin circles. That in some schools it begins with administration, some schools it begins with teachers, some schools it begins with students. And I would just encourage people to find uh, what I would call a critical mass or a critical group of people who are receptive to the idea of having um, intimate conversations and and go from there and uh, try to, um, as when you throw a pebble into a pond, um, let the ripples uh, expand outwards. So thank you. And, and your book is wonderful, Nancy. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Jose. You know, I couldn't have said it better. It in Minnesota, um, it starts in all those places. It starts with it starts with kids, it starts with teachers, it starts with student support staff, it starts with one person. Um, and it goes from 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 there. Agreed. <laughs> so on that note, Nancy, before we close out tonight with a couple minutes we have left, I'd like to talk about a little bit more if you have some things you'd like to share about the book, Circle in the Square, and also any trainings, upcoming trainings, or trainings you might think would be of interest to folks, any other resources or information you want to share tonight. Um, my, well, I just am thinking about all the people that I know around the country who do work in the area of restorative practices and um, there are too, too many to mention, and I don't know when they're going to be having their trainings. Um, I, I guess that one thing that I would really want to underscore and is that I think that it, um, it's great to read books, and I'm glad that people are reading my book, and that's fabulous, and that they're reading other people's books as well, and that's very important. But there is nothing like um, uh, experiencing the process, uh, having an experiential training yourself, uh, to to uh, really gain insight into um, the process and and into the philosophy, um, I uh, do have a seminar in June um, uh, um, that uh, is uh, primarily uh, uh, available for for people from Minnesota. So. Um, but every once in a while there are people from other parts of the country. I am more than happy to share the curriculum of that so that people can uh, replicate it in their own places. Um, of course, there are now many uh, colleges and universities that are um, teaching uh, restorative principles and practices in a variety of different settings, um, in a variety of different areas, and so um, that's another source of information. Um, and I guess the other thing is I would really encourage people to look to um, indigenous people in their area and, mm. um, and honor and respect them by going and asking them what they know about this and what what um, what wisdom could they impart mm -hmm. um, that this is um, this is a gift uh, certainly to me from some some people in Minnesota and the Yukon. Um, and uh, the wisdom uh, that exists throughout the United States and throughout the world needs to be honored and respected. Mm. I couldn't have said it better. And the, on, on just one other point, um, so that we don't lose how to stay in touch with you, Nancy, mm -hmm. you mentioned the curriculum, and I'm wondering if you're open to staying in touch with 
the council and and you know this is going to be a recording that people will access ongoing as well so how would people stay in touch to find out more about that curriculum um well they could they could email me at the department of education um that's where that information is held so uh and it's uh, public information because i work for a public uh, agency so that's nancy n a n c y dot Riestenberg r i e s t e n b e r g at state dot m n dot u s, um, or they could contact me through my um, personal email n a dot r i e s e at gmail dot com. Great. Well, and I as guess... with any uh, email uh, message, patience is a virtue, and persistence will be rewarded. And, and certainly, I also welcome, as your host and producer, um, this is a circle process in and of itself, and I certainly welcome your feedback and your input, and I love playing liaison to help support connections and mobilization in the email world, too. So please, by all means, feel free to access um, communications with me at molly, M-O-L-L-Y, at peacealliance.org really welcome your feedback, suggestions, and otherwise. And next week, I just want to say, we are going to be rounding out this mini-series uh, with Living Justice Press, co-sponsored by the Peace Alliance. We'll be talking with Oscar Reed and Jamie Williams, as well as youth from St. Louis Park High School. That's, um Yeah. Yeah, and uh, just a, a little, a few words about Oscar and Jamie and the kids from the high school. Oscar has been doing circles with, with young people at, at this high school for over 14 years. And Jamie is a freelance trainer and does contract work with schools in the Minneapolis public school system, as well as m a lot of other experience combined with those two. And of course, more than anything, we want to honor the voices of our youth. And so as much as possible, it's really the goal of this series, uh, even beyond this mini-series, to bring in youth voices. So again, going back to welcoming you to, to your feedback on kids that are in the field, on the ground, doing this kind of work, welcoming them into the spotlight and the conversation even more than we have in the past, as much as possible, is very important to us. And Nancy, it's just been a great pleasure and honor to speak with you and share with you tonight. And really to all of you who called in, webcasted in, this is a platform for you and for us to dialogue, have authentic conversation, and to create a platform where we can mobilize, communicate, and become more educated and connected in the field of restorative justice and beyond. And it's always an honor to be with you. On behalf of the Peace Alliance, Living Justice Press, and all of you, I hope you have a great rest of your night, and thank you again to Nancy Riestenberg. Good night, everyone. Thank you.